is from the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to Luke chapter 2. This is after Jesus is born, not too many days, a couple of weeks after when the law actually prescribed certain things for Mary and Joseph to have done, and that's what you see happening here, but there's a surprise in this moment. And so Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, if you're using that blue Bible, it should be page... um, 857. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation or for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. There's good news, bad news, right? What's good news for some is bad news for others. He is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And now we turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8, beginning at verse 11. It's page 572 in that blue Bible. This is in the context of all the statements about Emmanuel. Right? In chapter 7, verse 14, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for with us, with us, El, which is God, God with us. And it's in that context, then, we pick up chapter 8, verse 11. So we're going to read from 8, 11 through 9, 7. For Yahweh, for the Lord, for Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him... You shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. Here's good news, bad news again. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. And they shall fall and be broken. And they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents 
in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who has who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Goyim is the Hebrew word, the Goyim, the Gentiles, Galilee of the Goyim, the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as, a fuel, as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What I've read to you from the Gospel according to Luke and what I've read to you from Isaiah is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, who has poured out upon us the new light of your incarnate word, Grant that, same, that the same light enkindled in our hearts may shine forth in our lives and from our lives would blaze forth to penetrate the darkness and disperse the shades of sin and fear and despair. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you like to take notes, there are... Lots of space on the back of the worship guide with the two points that are there. Well, one of our adult daughters this last year sent me a book, and I loved it. I love the title. The title here is Aggressively Happy. Already I'm sold, right? Aggressively Happy. And then the subtitle goes on, A Realist's Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. A Realist's Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. I really enjoyed the book. Joy Marie Clarkson was the author. She's about 28 years old and very sensible and very perceptive. But in the book, Joy Marie Clarkson tells the moment that she was at a party and met a guy. Well, when the young man found out that her name was Joy, 
he made, as you can imagine, just like people do when somebody's last name is Christmas and they name a child Mary, somebody inevitably says something snarky to that child, right? Are you always Mary? Well, this guy says something similar. When he found out her name was Joy, he makes strong eye contact with her and he says, so your name is Joy. Do you feel like you always have to be happy, like you can never be sad? Well, needless to say, she has heard that question hundreds of times, and she bit her tongue for a moment, and then she replied, well, actually, my full name is Joy Marie. Well, the young man was unfazed, as are most of us at this point, right? And so she went on. Marie means sea of bitterness, sea of sorrow. And so I like to think of my name as a motto more than a description. Joy in the sea of bitterness. Life is full of bitterness, don't you think, she asks him. But it is possible to make it through on a boat of joy. The ocean, the whole ocean can't drown a tiny boat as long as the water doesn't get inside. Well, needless to say, the young man realized he had bit off more than he could chew and silently moved over to an easier mark to another conversation partner. Now, her story may not fit in snugly, but her story and the fun she had with it, with her name, pictures a sense of what is happening here in Isaiah chapter 8, 11 through 9, 7. Chapter 8, 11 through 22, darkness descends, chapter 9, 1 through 7, that there is a dawning day. Darkness descends, that there's a dawning day. And so darkness descends, chapter 8, 11 through 22. Notice that the reason the darkness is descending is that it says very clearly in verse 17 that the Lord has hidden his face from his people. I'll wait for you, but you have hidden your face from Jacob. Now chapter 8, verse 17 is actually promised by God hundreds of years earlier in Deuteronomy 31, verses 17 and 18, that God would hide his face. Here's how it goes. Listen. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and I will surely hide my face in that day because... Here's the reason statement. Because of all the evil they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And so in Isaiah 8, you ask the question, why has God hidden his face from him? And it's all right there. There are three reasons there, and they're all interconnected. And I want you to know that the three reasons translate very contemporaneously. They translate very much into our own moment. Notice the very first reason God has hidden his face from them. It's there in verses 11 through 15. It's because they've turned away from him to fear pick up the language, to no longer fear God, they have turned to fear social and political intrigues far more than they fear God. Do you hear the connection? They've turned their backs to look at something else to fear it. You have to turn your back to God, and that's what they've done. They've turned their backs and not their faces to God, to use a phrase from Jeremiah to fear social and political intrigues of their day. That's all that language there when he says, don't fear, Isaiah. Don't fear what your people fear. Don't go around broadcasting conspiracy, conspiracy, like all of your, your, your people do. 
If you want to be in dread of anything, be in dread of me. So what happens is that when we begin to turn away and fear other things, we begin to reverence the other things. The political intrigue and social intrigue. We begin to actually worship it. Because we fear it. I really appreciate, just as a side thought for you, Ed Welch wrote a wonderful book years ago called When People Are Big and God is Small. And he's making the same principle. For people who are dealing with and struggling with anxiety, it's normally because they fear the wrong thing. They fear the criteria of other people. They fear the situation and so forth. And so here's what he says in here. One of the things of many. Anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. This is what they've done. This is why God has hidden His face, because they've turned away from His face to fear other things other than God. To fear that George Soros and Deep State are ruling the world, or that there's this vast right-wing conspiracy. They fear everything else but God. He actually is over all these things and bigger than all these things. So by turning away from him, they're beginning to look into darkness. And so that's the next part. Notice the next thing that they do. They're listening to the tricky tricksters rather than to God. They're listening to those, uh, they're listening to mediums, verse 19, and necromancers. Necromancer is a fancy word for talkers with the dead or something like that, right? And so they're listening to others that they shouldn't be listening to, others that actually are breeding the reverence and fear of evil. Others that are telling them, oh, this is the dark stuff and you need to pay attention and this is what you need to be worried about all the time. They're listening to the talking heads of their day who want them to get their eyes off of the one who should be their fear and dread and to look at these other things and fear that. We have similar things happening even in our day. MSNBC, Fox News, throw it all in there. They're all telling you, be afraid of this, of this, of this, of this. Listening to the wrong voices instead of listening to God. That was the second part of why God had turned his face against them because they had turned their backs to him. And the third one is, down to verses 21 through 22. In their contemptuous rage, as they begin to sense the fact that they are, verse 20, 21, they're greatly distressed, they're hungry, and their contemptuous rage, when it gets them, they begin cursing their king, their political leaders, and thus they also begin to curse their God. And it says they lift their eyes and they look at the earth. That's an interesting statement. They lift their eyes. They don't lift all the way up to see who's on the throne. They lift their eyes to look at the here and now. And all they see is the earth. And then it says all they see is darkness and distress. They get sucked into the moment. That this is all there is. And it's dark. It's dark. My friends, there's a similar description of the Human masses in the New Testament, we read it before the confession of sin from, I, from Ephesians. The Gentiles in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What you recognize as you read Isaiah 8, 11 through 22 is that the descending darkness is self-inflicted. They shot their own foot. The descending darkness is self-inflicted. But I want you to notice that the promise is coming. The promise starting in chapter 9. The promise that there is a promised one who is coming. Who is bringing a day dawning. But that's in chapter 9, and we haven't got there yet. My friends, rightly, fittingly, we have been memorizing, rehearsing, and singing, and we're going to do it one more time today, the words of Charles Wesley in his carol, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And how rightly, how fittingly does it tap into what's going on in Isaiah 8, and yet the hope. All of the descending darkness and yet the hope of the dawning day. Do you remember the first line of the first verse? If you do, just say it with me. Come, thou long expected Jesus from... uh, Sorry, let's start again. Sorry, I'm getting too excited. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. From our fears, anybody afraid? From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find, the only place we can find it, our rest in thee. Well, then notice chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, dawn, the day dawning. And the day dawning is God to the rescue. Anybody remember those black and white movies where the cavalry would come over the hill, you know? Right? Or, or if you don't like those, if you can't remember those, anybody ever watch Lord of the Rings? You remember Helm's Deep, right before Helm's Deep? Gandalf says to Aragorn, he says, the morning of the fifth day, right? And so there they are at Helm's Deep. Evil has surrounded Helm's Deep. There's no hope of survival. Urukai and orcs and everybody by massive numbers taking over the walls. And there's Aragorn with Theoden, poor Theoden. There's Aragorn and Theoden. There's Legolas. There's Gimli. And Legolas looks up on that fifth day, the morning, and he sees the sun coming through the window and he says to Aragorn, the morning of the fifth day. And it stirs up hope in Aragorn. And he gets Theoden. They all get all, you know, armored up. And out they go charging on their chargers. And lo and behold, there's Gandalf with all the Rohirrim up on the mountain. Anybody ever watch this? Okay, thank you. Whew, just scared me. Right? And and did you notice the the way that it's done cinematically? There's Gandalf and the Rohirrim. The rescue has come. And did you notice the light? Blinding light from behind him. And down it comes with them as they come down the side of the mountain to barge into these massive forces of evil. Right? It's the same picture here. God to the rescue. God to the rescue. My friends, this is why aged Simeon says what he says. In Luke 2, as he's looking at that baby Jesus, a few weeks after his birth, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. God to the rescue. My eyes have seen your salvation. 
that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And so chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 is all about God's world rescue operation. Now notice, thinking about Simeon's words and thinking about this passage and others, God's world rescue operation naturally encompasses Israel. But also, surprisingly, it will explode the boundaries and the borders of Israel out, out into the rest of the world, out to include the Gentiles, which I imagine probably most of you fall into that category, right? Hallelujah. Right? That net has spread out to include the Gentiles. In fact, this God to the rescue passage is described in our Lord Jesus' ministry. In fact, this very passage, Isaiah 9, will be quoted over in Matthew chapter 4. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach. God to the rescue, the light coming. He begins to preach. And what does he preach? God to the rescue, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, dear friends, Charles Wesley's carol goes on to sing. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And I want you to see here, as you look at this passage, that the day dawning comes, verse 6 and 7, as a child is born. Now, that's a shocker. God to the rescue as a child. Now, not just any old child, but a specific child who is in person God to the rescue. Now, think about the, the perplexity here. God to the rescue there in swaddling cloths in diapers like every one of our babies and all of us who used to be babies once used to wear. In swaddling cloths laid in a feeding trough, a manger. Ah, yes, again, Charles Wesley hits the nail on the head. Born by people to deliver, born a child but yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now, thy gracious kingdom bring. And the descriptions that Isaiah lays out here of this child who is God to the rescue boggle the imagination. Notice there's four of them. Wonderful counselor. That should actually probably be one description. Sometimes our translations put a comma in there. It shouldn't be. It should be one description. Wonderful counselor. Now think about that word counselor, that that word has to do with what the, the counsel that a king receives and from which counsel he makes decisions and directions that can either make a kingdom or break a kingdom. 
Anybody remember Solomon's firstborn son, Rehoboam? Anybody? Sort of? Okay. Rehoboam, at the beginning of his reign, goes and gets counsel from the older men, the older counselors. He hears their counsel. It's wise counsel. And he says, nobody over 30, or something like that, right? We're not going to pay attention to them. So then he gets counsel from people his own age. And the counsel that he makes decisions from breaks the kingdom of Israel. This one has wonderful counsel. Not breaking the kingdom, but making the kingdom. It's wonderful counsel. In fact, if you have your own Bible sitting in front of you, you, I would like you to put right there in the margin next to wonderful counsel, put 25 verse 1. Isaiah 25 verse 1 uses both of those Hebrew words, and it goes like this. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Here is the one who is wonderful things, who is plans formed of old, faithful and sure. This child who's the wonderful counselor. The second description is that he is mighty God. That fits in with Isaiah 7, 8, and then into chapter 9. The Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel means, means with us. L means God. I mentioned that earlier. It fits in with the Emmanuel principle. God with us. Of course he's called mighty God. That's what's been promised since chapter 7 verse 14. But also notice he's mighty God. And that Hebrew word, those of you know that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, that Hebrew word is Gibor. El Gibor. God Almighty. Mighty God. And it's often used in reference to a warrior, a mighty warrior. He's the mighty warrior God. The third description is that he's everlasting father. That description is descriptive of his rule. Most kings at the time and even throughout the century since then would call themselves the fathers of the kingdom in some way. It'd be the father. They always saw themselves in that way. And here's the king he's called everlasting father. It's descriptive of his rule. That he rules with an unending fatherly care for his people. Like a good shepherd. A good shepherd who knows his sheep, who calls his sheep by name who lays down his life for his own sheep. A good shepherd who leads his sheep in green pastures and makes them lie down beside still waters, who leads them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, who even when they trudge through the valley of the shadow of death is with them. Like a good shepherd, everlasting father. And lastly, he's described as prince of peace. Notice that, the Prince of Peace, his reign. His reign will be textured by peace. That kind of peace that's talked about in Isaiah and other places where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears are turned into pruning hooks, where wolves and leopards lie down with lambs. In fact, here he goes on to emphasize that sense when he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. The prince 
of peace. The kind of peace that brings Hatfields and McCoys to lay down their guns and hug one another at his feet. The kind of peace that makes Johnny Rebs and Billy Yanks give up the fight and recognize they're on the same team and they're together. By the way, did you know at Gettysburg, there's a monument at Gettysburg that nobody ever talks about, where Confederate and Union soldiers after the war got together and built this eternal flame monument that says we'll never forget we're in this together, we're one. What an awesome picture. That's the kind of thing the Prince of Peace does. He takes bloods and crypts and he turns them around so that they get rid of their bandanas and guns and quit fighting turf wars. And they draw together and they love one another and they uphold one another and they are with it, each other in it. The Prince of Peace. And he can do that because he does this first. He makes us at peace with the one we have been warring against all of our human history since Genesis 3. He makes us at peace with the one we have been fighting against since clear back at Genesis 3. He makes us at peace with God. As Paul will put it in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The haters of God, the fighters against God, the despisers of God, us. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, hating God, throwing our fist in his face, turning away from him, ignoring him, walking away from him while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, since we have now been declared right with God, since we have now by Jesus been put on God's good side. Think of that statement. We've been put on God's good side? I didn't deserve it. Right. We were his enemies. And Jesus reconciled us and put us on God's good side. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received this reconciliation. Prince of Peace. My friends, these are all the qualities that God brings with him as he is born in our human condition, divine wisdom to preserve his people, power to bring about true and genuine liberation, unending fatherly care, the rule of shalom, of well-being, of wholeness, of peace. My friends, if that's true, and it's true, then no wonder, no wonder we sing with greater pleasure at this time of year, at Christmas time. I was just at the hospital yesterday singing to one of our members in the hospital, and we sang four Christmas carols. I sang them, he hummed along. That was great. No wonder we sing 
with greater pleasure at this time of year because it means something. No wonder we put a ton of lights out at this time of year to pierce the darkness. It's always a reminder that, yeah, darkness may be descending, but the day is dawning and His name is Jesus. No wonder we strive for greater harmony in our families and among our friends. No wonder we pray and praise and pant for this coming one. Therefore, sisters and brothers, fathers and mothers, younger and older, during this Christmas season, and Christmas starts today, by the way, and it goes on for 12 days. I just want you to remember that. Christmas just came, and it lasts 12 days. Woo! So during this Christmas season, allow it to stoke the awe and the embers of your heart to recall Isaiah 8, 11 through 9, 7, and to be glad that God has come. He didn't come to spread sentimentalism, but He came as real salvation and rescue. He came to break through the descending darkness with a dawning day. Now possibly someone is listening to me right now here, or maybe through live stream, or we'll hear this as it's recorded on sermon audio, maybe someone is listening today, is living in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance and hardness of heart. And yet, maybe, maybe you're sensing some niggling, nagging notion that you need what is being celebrated in Christmas. Friend, there is hope. If I'm talking to you, there's hope. Acknowledge. Come clean on this. Acknowledge your alienation from God. Acknowledge your hard-heartedness. Acknowledge your self-inflicted darkness. And turn to the one who brings God's world rescue operation dawning into a dark world and into dark hearts. This child that is born. And personally, personally pray. Pray the final words of this carol we've been singing for a whole month and we're going to sing again at the end of this service. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Brothers and sisters, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Ah, Lord God, so good. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have turned our faces from you to stare to the face of evil and darkness and to become so enamored that we forget you and we fear evil sometimes more than we even fear you. Forgive us for listening to the wrong voices and not listening to you. Forgive us for only seeing evil all around us and never seeing that you are on your throne and that you are coming to the rescue. Forgive us. And help us, Lord, to thrive, to blossom, to flourish in this child that is born, the son that is given. This one whose kingdom will have no end whose government will increase and whose peace will increase. 
This one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Thank you, Lord, that he has made us finally at peace with you. And so now may we be peace bringers to all around us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.